starting this new series over these next four weeks, uh, going through John's Gospel. And we call the series Finding Jesus. Uh, it's got nothing to do with the film Finding Nemo, but it means that we can steal their artwork. <laughs> so the first thing that Jesus says in John's Gospel are these words, come and see. John begins his account of Jesus' life with um, an invitation to see something, with a list, list of statements uh, to believe and agree or disagree, not, not a list of statements to agree or disagree with, but a simple command to come and look at what's happening. And this link between seeing and believing is a theme um, throughout this telling of the life of Jesus. Throughout John's Gospel, Jesus continually invites people to come and witness his actions, to encounter him, to meet him. And John likes to draw on this idea of seeing by using lots of imagery which relates to light and darkness and vision and blindness. And so believing in Jesus uh, for John is a kind of seeing. It's not just about people learning new facts, it's not about coming to new sets of beliefs, but it's a radical transformation of the individual. Imagine being born uh, entirely blind and then opening your eyes and seeing for the first time. I mean, you might struggle to see at first, you might be able to look at shadows, you might be able to look at dark objects, and then gradually imagine you're able to see everything that those of us that are fortunate enough to see can see. The beauty that we see in the world. The faces of your friends. Imagine seeing your first sunrise. This is how John describes what it's like to come and see Jesus for the first time. In the words of C.S. Lewis, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sun, that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. And in these four talks that we're going to do over the next four weeks at G2, my invitation to you all is uh, the same as Jesus' first invitation in John's Gospel. Come and see. Come and see how Jesus encounters people. Come and see how Jesus changes people's lives. I'd like to invite you to put yourselves in the shoes of these individuals that we look at. I want you to try and relate to their position, to ask some of the questions that they would ask, to think some of the thoughts that they might think, and ultimately to encounter Jesus in the same way that these people do. Someone once told me that the role of a preacher is not to convince people, um, it's not to convince those that he preaches to believe in something, but it's to build a cathedral out of words and to invite people to come inside and meet with God. And I know that's a, a kind of big expectation for what preaching can be, but this is my hope for these four talks, that, with, that through these talks, through these uh, studies of these characters in John's Gospel, that we could really encounter Jesus in a really powerful and really profound way. At times I feel like um, Christianity can be very knowledge-heavy. And I've fallen into the trap of um, thinking this, that what matters is about how much you know about the Bible, how much historical context you are aware of. But actually at the heart of Christianity, at the heart of what Jesus cares about, is something deeply personal. 
Interestingly, the word believe is used 99 times in John's Gospel. And 98 of those times, the word that is used is actually um, closer to something like trusting in Jesus. It's a verb. It's something that people do. It's not a belief that people possess. And I think often it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking of belief as something that we just have, something that we possess. But actually the picture of belief that is painted for us in John's Gospel is a picture of trusting deeply and personally in Jesus. So it might be that you need to see for the first time. It might be that you've never really had this kind of encounter with Jesus. You've never, you don't really resonate with those words that C.S. Lewis used. Or maybe you just need an eye test. It might be that your trust in Jesus has got a bit blurry, maybe your glasses have got a bit steamed up, um, and you need to see with clarity again. And Jesus' invitation to come and see is not just for those that have never seen before. It's important that we come and encounter Jesus again and again. So let's begin by looking at our first individual. And Laurie's going to come up and read this story for us. Um, so uh, this passage can be found on um, page 740 in um, the Bibles on the table. Uh, start reading from verse uh, from John 1, verse 43, uh, till the end of chapter 1. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Thanks, Doug. So this is a man that, uh, this man Nathaniel, uh, is a man that Timothy Keller describes as a sceptical student. And in many ways, as you might imagine, I can relate to this. To begin with, um, I am a student. I now have been a student for quite some time now. But technically, I'm still a student. I still insist on getting a three-pound discount off my haircut every time I go in, much to the annoyance of my barber. And it doesn't even look that good, does it? <laughs> and, and actually, I describe myself as a bit of a sceptic. As my wife would tell you, uh, I like to think that I know best about most things. So you tell me that this is the best book that's ever been written. And I think since I've probably read more books than you have, uh, that I very much doubt that that's true. 
you tell me that um, this is the best cupcake that you've ever tasted. And I think, well, I've tasted Hannah Smith's cupcakes, and uh, there's definitely not a better cupcake than that. You tell me that God has given you a word or a picture. Um, and I wonder, maybe, is it just your imagination? You tell me that God has healed your headache. And I reckon it was probably more likely the paracetamol that you just took. How about you? What are you sceptical about? Maybe you're thinking, at this speaker, he's only 24, what can he actually teach me? I know far more than he does about a lot of things. I might as well switch off now. Or maybe you're thinking, um, is the Bible really that relevant to our lives today? I know, I mean, we all say that we believe it, and we're all passionate about it, but really, like, there's a lot of stuff in there that would be just good to get rid of, wouldn't it? Or maybe you're thinking, praying, well, I know everybody thinks praying is really good, but does it actually make any difference? Or maybe you think, my friends don't need God. Their lives wouldn't be improved in any way by coming to meet God. Or maybe you think that Christianity um, isn't something that can really be taken seriously. Nobody seriously thinks Christianity is. Uh, nobody seriously thinks that Christianity is true today. It's just for those that are emotionally weak, um, those that are a little bit stupid, maybe. And I think we tend to be sceptical, if you're anything like me, about a lot of things, and it's really easy to do so. And the problem, I think, with this is not so much that we shouldn't question things. But I think the problem is that often we make our minds up about things before we've really given, any, given God a chance to change them. If you're anything like me, you approach God with all sorts of preconceptions about what he's going to do and who he is and what he stands for. God never speaks to me. God never answers my prayers. God never heals people when I pray for them. Going to church never makes any difference. So, um, as a sceptic, what can I learn from this sceptical student in John's Gospel? What can you learn from this sceptical student? So firstly, the men that we have described in this passage are a group of students. Much like many of the students at G2, which all seem to be around this sort of area. Little cheer from the students, maybe. There's usually uh, some other some. They're all they're all gathered around everywhere. Uh, there's usually much more, but it is the summer. But unlike uh, the students of today, these students didn't have a university to go to, uh, but they were followers of a rabbi or a teacher. And in this case, these students in this passage appear to be pupils of John the Baptist. Earlier on, in verse 35, it describes two of these as students of John. We're also told later that Nathaniel um, was sitting underneath the fig tree. And, and I went away and did a little bit of research, and apparently the fig tree is, was the favourite place for the Jews of the time to go and study and pray and meditate away from the heat of the day. So really, we have something fairly familiar. We've got a group of students hanging around Starbucks. And Nathaniel is one of these guys, and he's a man with plenty of preconceptions preconceptions. Like myself and many of us here today, Nathaniel isn't always convinced by what he hears. So his mate Philip tells him, we have found the one Moses wrote about. And you'll never guess what, he comes from Nazareth. 
So put yourself in Nathaniel's shoes for a second. The Jewish scriptures have been part of the tradition and the culture of the Jews for centuries. And they tell us about a time when a Messiah will come to rescue the people, to bless the world through the descendants of Abraham. He will restore all of creation to perfection. And the Old Testament describes um, this Messiah, this Saviour, as someone that's going to come and sort everything out. The Jews pinned all of their hopes on one promised person, the Messiah. And those of us that have been watching the World Cup can kind of sympathise with this idea. Oh, you spoiled the punchline. I remember four years ago, 4-1 down to Germany in the last 16 of the World Cup, 19 minutes to go, and Fabio Capello brings on this powerhouse of a striker. Seven goals in 62 matches. A record no man has beaten since. Emil Heskey comes off the bench on the 71st minute with a three-goal deficit to overcome. And at that moment in time, the hopes of the entire English nation rest on the shoulders of this one man. Okay, so now imagine that, but with someone that everybody believes can actually make a difference. Imagine the hopes that are pinned on one person that we actually believe can change an entire nation. And imagine if the difference isn't just winning the World Cup, but imagine if the difference is changing the entire world, the entire universe. That's the kind of hope that a Jew like Nathaniel would have had for the Messiah. So, if your mate comes up to you and says, I've just found the Messiah, I think I would be a little bit sceptical. Is this really God's solution? Is Philip really that trustworthy? And there's even more reason to be sceptical. Not only is Philip claiming that he's found this promised Messiah, but apparently he's from Nazareth. Now, judging from Nathaniel's reaction, Nazareth is not where you expect to find your Messiah from. For a man from Galilee, Nazareth was a bit of a hole. It's pretty primitive, a bit backwards, old-fashioned, maybe quite uneducated. So remember that Nathaniel, as a student, would probably have put um, a great deal of emphasis on power and status and education. It might be like someone telling you that they found the rightful heir to the British throne knocking around in Hull. <laughs> Can anything good come out of Hull? <laughs> Next slide, please. <laughs> <Keep> gone. <laughs> There's your answer. <laughs> so have you ever thought something like that? <laughs> have you ever had preconceptions about something before you've even given it a chance. Maybe you even feel like that about Christianity. Many people do. And I catch myself thinking things like this even as a Christian. You go to a church or you go to a different church or you go to a conference or there's a particular speaker that you know kind of rubs you up the wrong way, that he's from an entirely different tradition of church to you are. Maybe he's a little bit crazily charismatic or something. And I find myself saying, well, he's got nothing to say to me. I'm just going to switch off before he's even opened his mouth. Yeah, if it's someone that I respect and agree with, like Christian Savaratnam from Hull, you find yourself hanging on their every word. 
listening to everything they say. So maybe uh, you're a bit like that today. Maybe as soon as you hear that Josh Cocaine was preaching again, you switched off before I even spoke. And this is precisely what Nathaniel does. He hears the words Messiah and Nazareth, and he's already rejected what Philip's told him before he's even given him a chance. But I think what Philip does is actually really interesting. It might be that um, John, the writer of this story, overlooks um, a lot of the conversation that went on. But the response that we have recorded in this passage is quite simple. Philip says, come and see. Philip echoes that first command that Jesus gave to him, to come and see. And naturally, my first response to someone that I disagree with is to try as hard as I can to convince them. And this is what I think uh, philosophers, a lot of philosophers and theologians have done for centuries with Christianity. They've tried to convince people that Christianity is true, that it's plausible. And I'm not saying that this, is, this isn't of any value at all. But interestingly, Philip's response to Nathaniel's scepticism is not just to kind of launch into the, the ontological argument or to go through Anselm's proofs, which didn't exist at the time. Philip tells him to come and see for yourself. Come and encounter Jesus. You don't have to take it on my word. I'm not trying to convince you. I want to show you. So then what does Jesus do when he meets Nathaniel? To be honest, I find his response even more puzzling. Jesus looks at Nathaniel and he says, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. And Nathaniel's response, quite naturally, I think, is, how do you know me? That he's never met this man in his life. Imagine someone comes up to me in the street tomorrow and he says, you, my son, are a true Yorkshireman, a follower of Jesus and the best philosopher that York has ever seen. <laughs> Whilst I might be initially flattered by this, I think my response would be pretty similar to Nathaniel's. How do you know me? And Jesus' reply to this is even more baffling. Jesus says, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. So it's like the guy turning to me and saying, I saw you in Starbucks with that espresso macchiato reading Kierkegaard. It doesn't really seem to be a convincing piece of evidence that Jesus gives Nathaniel. But for some reason, he goes with it. And his reply instantly is, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And I don't know about you, but I don't see that happening very often. Moving from a position of scepticism and doubt and disbelief to saying, you are the son of God. Within literally minutes. So what is it that Nathaniel hears that changes his heart? What is it that challenges his preconceptions? Well, I don't think we'll ever know the true extent of what Jesus' reply to Nathaniel means. But we do know here that Jesus, like Philip, doesn't, um, doesn't attempt to convince Nathaniel. He doesn't try and prove using the scriptures that he's the Messiah. He could have done that. He doesn't seem to do that. He doesn't tell him anything remarkable 
other than to simply say, Nathaniel, I know you. This reply is, more than anything, deeply personal. Jesus' response to the sceptic and to Nathaniel's doubt is to meet with him personally. To say, I know precisely who you are. I know how you think. I know what you care about. I even know what you were doing an hour ago. And I think more importantly, Jesus knows precisely what it is that will satisfy Nathaniel's doubt. He knows precisely what he needs to hear. And so Nathaniel sees Jesus. He has an encounter with Jesus and he comes to believe. And it's not just that his preconceptions about the Messiah and about Nazareth are challenged. Nathaniel comes to trust in Jesus in a real way. Despite everything he believed prior to meeting him, he listens to the call of Jesus to come and see, and he enters into a relationship. So when I left home to go to university um, to start my undergraduate degree in philosophy, um, a lot of, uh, there were some people in my parents' home church that uh, took me to one side quietly just before I left, and they said, look, Josh, are you, are you sure you want to go and do a philosophy degree? Because we've heard it's a little bit dangerous. I mean, uh, someone else from this church went and did a philosophy degree, and now they've stopped believing in God. So maybe you should, maybe you should think twice about doing that. And at times, I think, um, as a church... Um, not specifically as a church G2, I mean as a church in a broad sense, we can be quite scared of scepticism. We can be quite scared of people questioning and thinking about their faith. And I think it would be the easiest thing in the world for me to do today and stand up and say that this passage is all about people that are sceptical and actually what sceptics need um, is just Jesus. But actually, um, I think this kind of goes against something that I believe I don't think that sceptics should be people that are cast away from Christianity. People that question should not be feared. Jesus doesn't instantly go on the defensive with Nathaniel. In fact, he tells him that he has nothing to hide. And I think that our response to scepticism should be the same. To be able to say, come and see. Come and see what I believe. Come and see my life. Come and see this person that I call Jesus. Come to Jesus with your questions and your doubts and your preconceptions and encounter Jesus for yourself. What about if you're the skeptic? What about if you've come to G2 this afternoon with this preconception that Christianity is a bit irrational or ridiculous or irrelevant, or you're not quite sure if this is true, there seems to be bits of it that are plausible, but it, maybe you're just a bit sceptical about the whole thing. What if yeah, you used to believe, but you can't quite bring yourself to admit that you still do anymore? Or maybe your vision has just got a little bit cloudy, like we talked about at the beginning. Maybe uh, you need an eye test. What if you really believe it in your head, but you're not really sure if you trust in Jesus? Well, the first question that I always ask myself when I find myself doubting, or when I feel far away from Jesus, is this. When did I last 
encounter Jesus. I think that the easiest thing that I could do is go away and read lots of books and try and convince myself of the truth of Christianity. And yes, those things are great things to do. They have a lot of value. But in my experience, they don't actually bring me any closer to Jesus. Often, I think when we doubt, we don't need to be convinced of some fact, but we need to see afresh who Jesus is. And this isn't as complicated or as spiritual as I think it might sound. In fact, I think meeting with Jesus, encountering Jesus, is one of the most simple things in the world. For me, often, it's the simple act of starting my day in silence, recognising that God is present. Before I do anything in my day, before I start work, before I read any book, I try to recognise that it's God that is present. His presence goes before me. It's the act of praying and giving thanks to God for the things in my life. It's the act of reading and reflecting on the words of Jesus as we have done today and asking God to encounter us through those words. And it's also the act of coming together like we have done this afternoon as a church to worship God, to spend time praising God, to reflect on the things that he has said. If you want to know what an encounter with Jesus looks like, you only need to go as far as his command in Matthew's Gospel when he says, where two or three gather together as my followers, I am there among them. So do you know that Jesus is amongst us now? Is that true? Do we perhaps need to encounter Jesus afresh or for the first time? Like we spoke about at the beginning, John describes Jesus as a light by which people come to believe. And so if believing is a little bit like seeing, then it's not surprising that we struggle to see in the dark. It's not surprising that we struggle to believe and trust in Jesus when we don't take time to meet with him. When we don't seek God in the small things of our life. When we don't spend time praying. So what I suggest we do this afternoon is really simple. We're going to, spend, we're going to take a few moments and we're going to ask Jesus to encounter us. And this isn't um, a super spiritualised, hyped up sort of experience. But it's simply the act of withdrawing from constantly doing, constantly singing or talking or thinking or meeting with people or reading or drinking coffee. Withdrawing from the act of doing and asking God to meet us when we withdraw from these things. And that's what we're going to do now. So it might be that um, you experience God's presence in a really real, tangible way. It might be that, I know for some people, meeting with God is a really physical and a really extreme experience. And you do see that described in the Bible. People experience the presence of God in a really radical way. um, You hear about people that are forced face down onto the ground because of the power of the presence of God. And I would say that that sort of experience has happened to me maybe once or twice in in my life. But usually, for me, um, experiencing God is about 
a quiet stillness in my heart that when everything else is stripped away, when I, when I move everything else out of the way, I know that God is present. I know that God is here. And that kind of experience of God is also described in the Bible. I think when it comes to this, it's really easy to forget what we've seen with Nathaniel, that Jesus treats us as individuals. Jesus knew exactly what Nathaniel um, needed to hear. And he also knows exactly who you are and where you're at. So let's not try and be anything or do anything or expect anything other than to just um, spend some time in the presence of God. But finally, what about if you, like Nathaniel, are not convinced by my telling you that I have found the Messiah? My response, as you probably have guessed by now, is simple. Come and see. I do believe that there are some answers to the difficult questions about the Christian faith um, that can be defended rationally. Um, and we could debate back and forth um, and back and forth about the same arguments and the same pieces of evidence. But ultimately, um, for me, I know that what's true is that the person of Jesus has changed my life and he has encountered me. And so I invite you too to come and see.